0: the idea that the frontiers of science and innovation if they're applied to lift up all of humanity can constitute big bets that in fact change human potential at real scale and that's what we're trying to do right now as well you're listening to the elevate podcast
1: and i'm your host robert glazer Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Anne Frank, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Today's guest, Dr. Raj Shah, has worked tirelessly to improve the world. He is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation and has an impressive history of leadership and innovation in global development. His previous work includes leadership roles at USAID, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He's been a driving force in humanitarian efforts worldwide, addressing issues from global health to sustainable development. And he's also the author of the new book, Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens, which is available wherever books are sold. Raj, it's great to have you join us on the Elevate Podcast.
0: Thank you, Robert. It's great to be with you.
1: So I always find it helpful to start a little bit at, at the beginning. Understand what what childhood, particularly, I think, influences a lot of a lot of what we do in our life. So you, you grew up side you grew up outside Detroit, not outside. And as the child of immigrants, I know you had a pretty diverse educational and cultural background. Do you think a lot of your humanitarian work has has roots in in the experience from when you are younger?
0: I think so. But I grew up in an Indian American family. My parents are both immigrants that came in the late 60s with educational scholarships, but no other resources. And they just had this faith in education and hard work and the American dream. And That was a time when uh, all those things seemed to align effectively. So I had a great childhood. I will say growing up in suburban Detroit, take things like pre-engineering drafting classes in middle school. My dad was in the auto industry at Ford Motor Company for 30 plus years. So I assumed I'd be either an engineer or a doctor. I chose doctor (laughs) at the end of the day. And that's how kind of it got started. For me, finding my way to being involved in kind of global humanitarian issues and, and large scale policy uh, change was not a very clear path. Like it, you kind of know how to become a doctor. You take tests and you go to med school. And I didn't really know how to scratch the itch of wanting to have impact on social issues. When you went to med school, so what kind of doctor were you, first of all? In just internal medicine, I didn't specialize beyond that. Yeah.
1: got it, Internal medicine. And so what was the beginning of the transition from medicine into public policy?
0: Well, so, I mean, I always had an interest in public policy from like high school debate and from seeing visitors like Nelson Mandela when he came to Detroit and just being generally inspired. But I didn't quite know what to do with that. When I was in grad school, I kept applying to join uh, political campaigns because I wanted to get that experience. And I uh, twice got rejected from joining, just as a volunteer, Al Gore's presidential campaign. He was running for president. He was vice president. His campaign was in D.C., and then it turns out he wasn't doing very well in the primary. So, he closed his Washington campaign and moved it to Nashville, Tennessee. And a friend of mine said, hey, you should try a third time. So, I applied a third time and just to be a volunteer, you know, no, no salary. Pretty basic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, you're welcome. Come on down and we'll give you housing. So, the day after I took my final set of board exams... My girlfriend, now wife, and I drove 14 hours from Philadelphia to Nashville, Tennessee. I spent the next several months living in Al Gore's best friend's pool house and volunteering on the Gore campaign. And that was kind of my introduction to both politics and policy.
1: So you didn't go just get a good doctor job. So after that experience, what did what did you do next?
0: Well, as you and your listeners would remember, we didn't quite win that campaign. It was a close one. <laughs> yeah. It <laughs> was a close <laughs> one, to say the least. Yeah. And so when that didn't quite happen, I was effectively without a job and looking around. And a friend of mine from the campaign who had joined uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, just as they were setting up their foundation, said, oh, you know, Bill and Melinda were thinking about hiring Someone with a little bit of a medical background, a little bit of an economics background, but also kind of an intern. And I thought, hey, that sounds like me. And so I interviewed and joined the Gates Foundation in its early days.
1: So you never actually practiced medicine.
0: I did not, know Some side stuff, but nothing legal.
1: (laughs) And so what what was your role at the Gates Foundation?
0: So I started as an economist, which I actually started as the chief economist, but that was overstated title because there were no other economists and they didn't need a chief economist. Did you have a dual major in medicine? I did. Yeah, yeah. Medicine and economics from the Wharton School at Penn. So anyway, I did that. But our first big project, which I write about in the book, was, was kind of where I learned the concept of Big Bet. Bill and Melinda said, look, we, they had read an article about 600,000 kids dying of a disease called rotavirus. There was a rotavirus vaccine that was going to come out, but the vaccine was going to come out in the United States where kids didn't die of rotavirus. And it wasn't going to be available in low-income countries where all these kids did die of rotavirus. And they just said, gosh, that, that's wrong. How can we make sure every child on the planet receives every vaccine that could save their life in a cost-effective way? And that started a process that went on for years to establish an effort to do exactly that. In the book I write about, a tactic that Bill Gates deployed called uh, that I call Ask a Simple Question, but he'd pull us all together and keep, kept asking, what does it cost to vaccinate a single child? Because he wanted to figure out what it would take to vaccinate the whole world, even though it was so much more in terms of resourcing than what we had available at the time. Interesting. And so what did you
1: do? How long were you there? I was there almost eight years. And what eventually brought you to the Rockefeller Foundation?
0: Well, before Rockefeller, I left Gates to join President Obama's administration. And I was invited to join as an undersecretary in the Department of Agriculture uh, did that for nine months or so, and then you're a renaissance man. No two jobs the same. I know I zigzag <laughs> a lot, and, and even in my eight years at Gates, I had four different jobs. One of which was running a new agriculture program, which was why I had l- had to learn a thing or two about agriculture, and then just sort of loved it. Ended up working on a major global project called Feed the Future with with Hillary Clinton, who was our Secretary of State at the time, and then she and the President asked me to to lead. USAID, which is our, our lead humanitarian agency. So after government, I joined, I started a small private equity firm and then joined Rockefeller. Hey, you just had one more career in there,
1: Pri- private equity. <laughs> so for those who aren't familiar with Rockefeller, can you talk a little bit about the foundation and, and what it does?
0: Yeah, this is an incredible institution. It was created uh, more than 110 years ago by John D. Rockefeller. When it was created, it was endowed with 2% of American GDP and and the idea was uh to find areas that that he called scientific philanthropy now i call it big bets but it was basically find areas of science and innovation that could really transform lives at scale especially for those who are vulnerable and so the early thinking was areas like medicine and public health which at the time were not really science-based discipline in 1910. They were selling things off the back of trucks. And so they said, let's turn this into a science-based discipline and then eradicate diseases here in the United States. Our first effort was the eradication of hookworm in the American South. And then around the world, we invented the yellow fever vaccine famously and were awarded a Nobel Prize for that. And then decades later, they said, well, now if we invent, if we invest in agricultural science, especially in the sixties and seventies, when there was huge population concerns and, and a lot of people on the brink of hunger and poverty in Asia and Latin America, they invested in agricultural sciences. And one of our employees, a famous scientist named Dr. Norman Borlaug invented a kind of wheat variety that in Mexico that actually would increase the yield of ye- wheat by three to 400% compared to what was being grown in many parts of the world. And when that invention really took hold across the planet, more than a billion people were moved off the brink of hunger. And Dr. Borlaug was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for that incredible effort, which is now called the Green Revolution. This has always been a place that's grounded in the idea that the frontiers of science and innovation, if they're applied to lift up all of humanity, can constitute big bets that in fact change human potential at real scale. And that's what we're trying to do right now as well. Have you ever owned something that inspired
1: you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, let's talk about the book, Big Bets. What was your moment? People either have a usually like a motivation or something they want to get out there or there's a moment. What was sort of for you? What brought the book to make you sit down and, and write it?
0: You know, I started
1: the book during COVID
0: and it was a moment when America, which should have been the best prepared country in the world, turned out to have the highest number of excess deaths from COVID-19. And we were sitting in our homes and folks were kind of down and depressed. I was one of them. Uh, and and I just wanted to write about these experiences because I felt that it's realistic to be optimistic. We get bombarded in social media and in the news by all this negative negativity about whether we can solve the problems we face. And I feel like I got to learn from extraordinary leaders, Bill and Melinda Gates, President Obama, Secretary Clinton, folks you haven't heard of in a rainforest in South India, Dr. Sudarshan, an incredible humanitarian or a woman who changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of young girls molly melching in west africa i wanted to tell their stories and share lessons learned and and inspire people to think big about creating positive change
1: so one of the things interesting i don't know whether you know him but i don't know these episodes may run back to back i just recorded it but one of my earliest mentors i just interviewed him arun Gup, just wrote a
0: book on public private partnerships and how do you know him I do know Arun. He's a friend and really admire him. And his book's a great book. I hope folks will go out and buy it when it's out.
1: These may go back to back, so they're in a sec. But it just it occurs to me, you've snaked between kind of public and private and a lot of these things and what the Gates Foundation do in their background. And, you know, he's really, you know, when you think about a lot of these big breakthroughs, it takes both. But we're at a point now where there's a lot of distrust in in government, but government does a lot of the basic research and science and has the technology and, and the private sector has the ability to commercialize. So what's your experience, particularly around these big bets? I mean, one thing he and I talked about, although because of all the politics and controversy, I don't think it gets that much awareness. But I mean, the vaccine was kind of a perfect example of record time and efficacy and have government played a huge role in the private sector played a huge role.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, at the end of the day, every big bet I write about in this book requires some degree of meaningful public and private partnership. And so thinking governments alone can solve our most challenging problems is wrong. And it's an unfortunate expectation that a lot of people have. And thinking that private sector left totally unfettered will do the same also has proven to be ineffective. But when we can get folks working together, public and private, We can do things like turn around the Ebola crisis, keep it contained to West Africa, or fight hunger at scale, move 100 million people off the brink of starvation after the 2008 financial crisis, or what we're working on now, which is bringing renewable energy to a billion people who still live in the dark, believe it or not, around the planet. And I have found that those public-private partnerships are the key to success, but they require... Uh, a kind of an optimism, a willingness to trust, and frankly, some knowledge and and proficiency with government and the private sector.
1: Well, the other thing that this is something he and I talked about, and he, he kind of set the line before I asked him the question, which was like, there's some really big problems in the world now. And these are these are problems for where there's also a profit motive if you solve them. But how do we get our best and brightest to not work on the next candy crush or crypto scam or, you know, something that adds very little to society and jump in and solve one of these like really meaningful problems. Because I think at the end of the day, again, financial incentives, irrespective, it just feels like it's going to be a lot more meaningful for those people.
0: And frankly, as I travel around the country talking about the book and, and connecting with folks related to our work, the truth is you go on a college campus and, you know, young scientists They want to be great scientists, but they want to use that skill to make a difference in the world. And that sense of inspiration and that commitment to mission is so high. And somewhere along the way in our lives and in our careers, we have to do what you and I have to do, which is take the kids to practice. And the day-to-day of life can wear down your sense of inspiration. But the reality is, I think we're sort of born wanting to make a difference in a positive way. And I think the book Big Bets is about a roadmap and a set of tactics that anyone can use, public sector or private sector, to ensure that their work is really part of solving problems at scale. Well, I want to get into some of your favorite
1: kind of stories and frameworks. But I know one of the things you stress in the book is that optimism is a key trait for leaders. Can you Talk about this in terms of the people that you've worked with, or maybe some of your experience or your own experience. And how do we cultivate that in today, more leaders? And and I would guess pragmatic optimism, right? And I, when it, this is not kind of blind optimism.
0: Yeah, that's right. Definitely pragmatic optimism. And pragmatic optimism, actually, there's a discipline that I talk about in the book that hopefully helps people develop that sense of pragmatic optimism. And it basically comes down to really thinking hard about how to solve and not just make incremental improvements on the problems we face and to me that requires a discipline it starts with saying okay how do we find kind of the fresh innovative solutions that can scale we talked about vaccines and immunization and you know we settled on that as a as a solution because we thought that was the most cost effective way to save the most lives and in fact after 20 years and 980 million inoculations more than 16 million child lives have been saved big bets require unlikely partners to come together and really do extraordinary things together and i write about bringing democrats and republicans or public sector and private sector partners together even to fight a famine in somalia you know we we leaned on cargill to to donate rice and to help us map which grain shipments were closest to the port of Mogadishu at a time when too many children, uh, any children dying is is inexcusable, but too many children were dying of hunger, you know, in this day and age, and that shouldn't happen. And so, and then big bets require like the rigor of measuring results and staying focused. And I write about the Ebola crisis in West Africa and how the results measurement framework allowed us to find the right solutions and, and deliver outcomes. So to me... Those are the elements that allow you to be optimistic about what's possible. Can you double click on that? Because the Ebola
1: thing looked like it was going to, again, this is before COVID. So I'm trying to put my brain there because before that, like, people couldn't even get their hands or brain around a pandemic, right? But I remember like, it was looking really bad. And then it sort of very quickly improved. So what was the silver bullet there?
0: Well, so just to put it in context, during the summer of 2014, the Liberian uh, in Liberia, a small West African country, 50% of the health workforce died because the mortality rate from catching Ebola was 70%. And Ebola is a hemorrhagic fever. People bleed to death in front of you and in public and highly contagious. And so the general practice of, of treating with respect the bodies of the deceased proved to be a major point of transmission. And so When President Obama's big bet in that setting was to, for the first time in American history, deploy U.S. troops to create the conditions to allow humanitarian responders to enter that field of work and roll back the disease. And the CDC estimated at the time that 1.6 million cases would occur and that hundreds of thousands of them would be around the world, including in the United States. And uh, it it was a high risk, big bet. But ultimately, what drove success was we deployed our troops we built field hospitals we put bioterror labs in different geographies and we were able to kind of we actually sent young people on motorbikes to go and identify likely positives in in rural communities and we built this sort of makeshift just-in-time data architecture that let us see where there were positive cases and once we had that data architecture in place we could identify what was working what wasn't working we could surge resources to likely positives quickly. And we ended the Ebola crisis with 30,000 cases, not 1.6 million, 11,000 deaths, and only two cases in the United States, neither of which were, uh, were transmitted within our borders.
1: So it was all containment, right? Was there actually a vaccine or a medicine or anything that,
0: that worked? No? No. No, it was all the prevention of contagion. And in fact, when we deployed our troop, the stated purpose was to build these big Ebola treatment units, which were places where the sick could go. Uh, But with a 70% mortality rate, the truth is, if you went in there, you never came out, your clothing and articles of effects never came out, and your ashes never came out. And so nobody would go in. So what ultimately worked in, in fighting Ebola came from local communities was these burial teams of four or five people, all in protective equipment with WHO body bags. And when someone would die in a community, they in a household, they would perform a quick ceremony and remove the body safely before family members, usually girls and women, would wash and redress the bodies, which was the point of spread. And so, that reduced contagion by 70% and cases went down pretty quickly after. And I I was uh, I, I was responsible for the West Africa response. And kind of walk through the hot zone in in the middle of October of 2014 just when we were starting to turn the tide and to me it's a case study in data experimentation doing what works and being an innovator in the context of a fast moving and scary pandemic
1: so if that's a positive case study covid's probably a negative case study why did every country basically deploy a different response to the same virus And I mean, you probably had a look into this. I mean, there was obviously the medical community and the science community, and then there's different policies, and then there's different cultural things. It doesn't seem like two countries even have the same strategy.
0: Well, during a crisis like COVID, the single most important thing, which we know, especially early on, is rapidly standing up diagnostic and testing capacity. Because if you don't know who's positive, you can't really contain the spread, which is so basic and so easy to say. And America was so well set up to do this because our CDC is the best in the country, in the world, right? We train other centers for disease control. And we just got this wrong. We sent the wrong reagents to labs. And so we couldn't get the testing right. We didn't allow the German and and South Korean tests into the country, which actually worked. President Trump at that time was early in the pandemic, was actually publicly stating we shouldn't do more testing because then we'll find more cases. And that created a a negative drag on performance to be modest about it. And the reality was, we got behind the ball. And I think most other countries struggled with the same challenge, but for different reasons. There were some uh, positive outliers. Australia, uh, the countries that have been through H1N1 and SARS that had already stood up these public-private diagnostics testing coalitions they were the fast and good responders like south korea yeah the people right the people that had seen it before but for the rest of the world it was like what do we do and it was in that setting there's a chapter in the book about covid because it was in that setting that rockefeller stepped in and created a national testing strategy for america worked with the trump administration to create the antigen testing market deployed those tests to schools across the country and tested how to use rapid but less specific and sensitive tests to reopen schools hospitals you know different institutions that had been difficult to keep open during the lockdown and i think did some of our best work to kind of create a widespread antigen testing market but when we started that i think america was doing something like three hundred thousand tests a week and we were calling for 30 million tests a week and everybody said that's impossible and you know, a few months later, we were exceeding 30 million tests a week.
1: Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. Hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is stop eliminating perfectly good candidates by asking them the wrong questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well, HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, The Big Idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org/subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. Hey, ELEVATE listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info, the Pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. History is all about learning from things. I think obviously this got terribly politicized. And I think a lot of people, something like this happened now. I'm not sure that we could get anyone to listen to anyone, <laughs> which is, but, but I'm, I'm actually more surprised that a couple of years later, and let's just look at this from a very centrist viewpoint. I think there were people on, so if you just say left and right to be simplistic or both camps who are very right and very wrong about certain aspects of the pandemic. And understanding we had limited information, but now with hindsight, I still haven't seen a paper, a book, a thing. I mean, we' was talking about what did we get right, what did we get wrong, and and what would we do next time, which kind of seems crazy to me. <laughs> Like, would we close schools next
0: time? Or are we all deciding that that no, destroyed mental health? Next, <laughs> yeah. We should not close schools next time. I, so I do, I, it's not a whole book, but I write about it in a chapter of the book. And because big bets are fundamentally about partnerships and alliances. So we partnered with the Trump administration, which was tough to do to stand up testing at a time when the president himself was not really aligned around. Yeah,
1: the cruise ship. I remember that we went, yeah, we went, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. You remember the cruise ship. And by the way, his team was grateful for the collaboration. And while we butted heads on some things, and I'm open and honest about it, we also could collaborate to, to do something extraordinary, which was expand testing to reopen institutions. At the same time, we partnered with the teachers unions because we felt that this progressive political kind of mindset of we just have to shut everything down uh, was also deeply detrimental and scientifically unnecessary. So I wrote op-eds with Randy Weingarten, the head of the uh, AFL, uh, the head of the teachers' unions. We worked with school districts across the country, and we put in place the the framework collected the data that allowed the administration, first Trump, then Biden, to invest in reopening schools uh, faster than they otherwise would have been. And by the way, history will record. The deaths in America were extraordinarily unnecessary and way too high, but the six and a half million kids who just dropped out of school at every level, never to return to education, and the massive learning loss that's largely black and brown communities across this country are the two biggest negative outcomes of this pandemic, and both were avoidable. And they were kind of both caused by different ends of the political spectrum being determined about their beliefs without being as cooperative as they could have been with others.
1: So is there anyone, I mean, there's not like a 9-11 commission, but is there any, you would know this, are there organizations sort of commissioned to sort of write the, what did we get right and what did we get wrong? And without blaming, I think it'd be, again, I'm just not convinced we wouldn't make all the same mistakes tomorrow.
0: There are, there's a gentleman named Philip Zellico who's doing something along those lines with support from others. The challenge is the 9-11 commission had the power of the Congress and its ability to subpoena, to collect documents and review what really happened. And that power has not yet been granted to a commission to do that research. So I know you
1: said before, and I was going to ask you about it this because it's a big part of the book, this unlikely partnerships. I'd love to hear some more examples, but why do you call them unlikely? To me, cargo working on a food thing, is that just who is partnering, like not just who bringing companies together that wouldn't otherwise work
0: together? Yeah, I think it's that and it's mistrust. But when I ran the Haiti earthquake response, the humanitarian community just didn't trust initially the the military. And in a country like Haiti that has had so many different military incursions of one type or another, there's a natural reason why that mistrust is is first and foremost and I, you know, hats off to the leadership of the United States military and the armed forces, because they understood that and they said, we're going to work under your counsel and guidance, do what you tell us to do, and we're going to work as one team. And we built that culture of trust. Similarly, like the the example of the Somali famine, you know, Cargill, I had a relationship with Greg Page, who was the CEO of Cargill at the time. We'd been working on different ideas of how to address hunger and food insecurity globally. But they had never done this kind of a donation before. And we were just looking at these spikes in the data in terms of child deaths in Somalia. And the World Food Program, the humanitarian response, was was blocked by al-Shabaab, a terrorist group that had actually stopped, killed, and stolen humanitarian food aid shipments. So I called Greg and said, we need a different approach. Do you have any ships in the region? And can you quickly get to uh, Mogadishu? And when, he, so it's not a regular request. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a regular request, but I knew that he was oriented around doing the right thing. And, you know, when he did it, it was a big deal. It made a huge difference. He, he wrote a whole article about it for his team and colleagues. And it was a big statement of their values and the industry they are in. And it a reminder to me that people want to have a sense of purpose, whether you're at USAID or the World Food Program or Cargill. And tapping into that sense of purpose can unlock a tremendous amount of collaboration and unlikely partner behavior.
1: So what are some of the most significant challenges you face in implementing the kind of big bet philosophy, particularly in some of these high-pressure situations and humanitarian crises.
0: I write about something I learned from a failure. Because when you try to do big, bold, transformational things, you're going to succeed and you're going to fail. And frankly, in government, you don't usually kind of go right about the failure (laughs) for for a variety of reasons, including congressional oversight. But I write a whole chapter in the book about trying to build a large-scale hydropower dam in the Democratic Republic of Congo as part of an effort to bring electricity renewable cheap electricity to 250 million people uh, in southern and western africa and that project i worked on for years president obama and and president xi of china had collaborated around an idea that we should make this a positive example of u.s chinese collaboration particularly in africa and we put a lot of high level leadership energy into it and it failed spectacularly for two reasons one is The United States Senate led by a senator who actually supported USAID, but did not support this project, passed a law to say that we couldn't work on it anymore. Um, And the other was the leader of the DRC at the time, the president was not able to work with us in a way that met our own standards of transparency. And what I write about is the lesson learned is that you have to know who you're betting on when you take on these big partnerships. And in that case, I hadn't really done my homework Um, to understand that Senator Leahy or President Kabila would be unlikely to join this collaboration and frankly, were essential to its success. I guess you need need to trust
1: your stakeholders in a big bet.
0: Yeah. And you need to know, you really need to know what are your stakeholders thinking? What are their interests? How are they going to Play this out, and you you got to kind of do some mental chess. I just got enthusiastic, plowed ahead, and and didn't do that as carefully as I now try to do (laughs) when we make big. Maybe it was after that. Where was that learning
1: applied to a pre-failure? Right where where you said, "Look, this is too big." Of where you pulled the plug on something because the critical factors that you've identified just weren't there.
0: Oh, that's interesting. That's a great question. You know, as as the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, I feel like I do that uh, because we get a lot of proposals, a lot of ideas and we start down the path of a lot of projects where we say okay if, if these things happen we could be very successful and then if they don't happen we have to pull the plug. We had one big effort to it was called a hundred resilient cities to, to help cities be more resilient to climate change and other shocks and it did some really important things but when I looked at it and said okay can this really, change the ability of these cities to withstand the huge climate consequences that are coming or are we just doing more moderate things around the margins it felt like the latter and we shut down our biggest program and i got a lot of critique for that you know because uh, you don't it's hard to shut things down in the in this sector of the economy Uh, and it's all good work you know it's people trying to turn school concrete parking lots and schools in Paris into, you know, grass fields that can absorb water and are more, uh, more climate resilient. And so the impact wasn't there. Is that in that one? Yeah. Well, the impact wasn't scalable. Like we we weren't going to be able to find those business models that would scale to some huge amount. We could convert a schoolyard somewhere, but we could do that by paying for it, you know, and.
1: Well, that's funny, talk about scale a little bit because I think that's a really important part of these things, right? Obviously, if you get the vaccine right and the distribution and you get it down to $5, you can get it to a lot of people. There are some things that have great outcomes, but it's like each one's like starting over again, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, scale is 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 sort of the discipline of thinking about scale is a huge part of the underlying analytics to a big bet. So I'll just give you an example. The, The Rockefeller Foundation started working on the issue of energy poverty. The fact that about a billion people live with consuming less electricity than it takes to power one light bulb and one home appliance per person for the course of a year. At that level of electricity consumption, you're stuck in poverty. You can't create jobs. You can't create businesses. It's just you can't turn your labor into productivity and growth, all of that. So we said, hey, maybe we could start piecing together renewable energy solutions and distributed power solutions and serve those customers. Even though they're poor, they'll pay for power and that'll help them move out of poverty. So about a decade ago, we started this effort. And for the first five or six years, I mean, it basically wasn't working. They were, you know, putting together solar panels and batteries and building these small grids, we called them mini grids in northern India and eastern Congo and northern Nigeria. And we we're providing power and paying for it, but it was costing like $1.20 a kilowatt hour, which was not at all price competitive. So then a few things happened. They they innovated and created new energy storage and, and started using new batteries. They, someone invented these smart meters that allowed people to, in real time, pay for power only as they consumed it. They switched to mobile phone-based payment. They introduced artificial intelligence to manage these systems from afar called battery and energy management systems. All of that, and the panel cost went down. And all of a sudden, they were providing power at 20 cents a kilowatt hour like what I'm paying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so now creating jobs, girls for the first time are studying at night, schools are open in the evenings with lighting, people can buy power tools and turn their carpentry shops into things where they can produce more products, sell, make more money, hire more people. And you see the uptick economically. And I've seen it in some of the toughest Post conflict, war ravaged communities on the planet, I've seen these solar installations transform the sense of what's possible and talk to girls and women and mothers whose lives have been transformed by their new opportunities. And that's awesome. And that's what's, but our goal, we we couldn't scale that until we got the price down to when this whole thing became commercially viable. Can't, well,
1: we lose on every car, we'll make up in volume, right? That's the old GM. Exactly. I was going to ask you about solar in particular, because I, having gotten into it in the la- last couple of years, and, and it just and, and seen where the costs have come, and I guess that's part of the equation. but every time I fly into Vegas. I'm like, I don't get it. Like this city is like burning fuel in the middle of nowhere. And it's sunny 18 hours a day in every flat building top. And similarly, right, they're running diesel generators in these parts of the world. I mean, I see these things on Amazon where it's like one panel and a thing and you can run it just feels like that's a major opportunity that's being missed.
0: It's a major opportunity. And so we're now we so our our big bet is to reach a billion people with this Product
1: and is it like a, it's just a panel and a hookup, and you can make your own?
0: Well, it's it's a mini grid, so it can range from like 200 kilowatts to 10 megawatts in scale, and that can be anything to power a small village of a few thousand people to powering an entire small city of 100,000 people. Uh, but the idea is the same, and the reason the, the key to the whole thing, frankly, is getting the right energy storage, so and having the right infrastructure so that you can provide power when it's needed or the specific kind of small productive loads that are required. So you can't power a huge factory with just a solar installation.
1: Yeah. It seems like battery storage is is the next microprocessor, right? Like the Moore's law of it's going to reach a point every year it gets cheaper and faster, but that seems to be the main thing that's holding us up
0: now. So that's correct. And by the way, if you're, because now we're active in 22 countries, we've built this $11 billion partnership. We partner with Private entrepreneurs, but also governments to expand access to because we're trying to reach a billion people, we we'll probably reach 20 million or so now in different forms. But the reality is, most of the countries we work in, low income countries, either can't get access to batteries or pay three, four times the cost you would pay in California for access to a battery. And the reason is the supply chain preferences the rich world. It preferences the electric vehicle segment. And right now, there's a tremendous crunch. So we're actually trying to bring countries together to say, hey, if you pool your procurement, build out supply chains, a lot of the things we did on vaccines 20 years ago can apply today to help create an industry that supports large-scale deployment of energy.
1: Well, we're also at a moment where lithium prices have collapsed. seems like it gives everyone an opportunity. For a while, it was just no one could get any. And now it seems that interest rates have slowed
0: that down. And frankly, you ask why I'm optimistic. And the truth is I've been doing this work fighting poverty and promoting development for a long time. Very rarely do you truly stumble upon and innovate the kinds of solutions that can, on a commercial basis, create a transformation in a society. And I've seen that transformation in so many parts of this world. So I'm super bullish on, on the idea that the re- renewable energy technology frontier can actually be the thing that not just displaces future coal plants and, and therefore brings down net carbon emissions globally, but can actually- Gives people their independence. Yeah. Totally. Gives people the ability to participate in a proper growing economy. In a way that can actually once and for all make a huge dent in poverty. So it's a
1: good segue. Like going forward, what are the big bets that you think that the world should be making to address our challenges, which are many? Obviously, climate change is one. AI seems like a pro and a con in, a, in every sentence you know that I hear. But where where should we be taking our our, our swings?
0: Well, there's so many amazing opportunities. So one is what we've been talking about, just applying renewable energy technology to the 70, 80 countries that house three and a half billion people that live in fundamentally energy-constrained environments. Another is transforming the way we eat and the way we produce food to both sequester carbon and prevent greenhouse gas emissions, but also, frankly, to deal with the fact that the way we eat our diet effectively makes us sick. And we spend tremendous amount of time, money, and effort fighting chronic diseases that are fundamentally caused by poor diet quality. And instead of having everybody in America, for example, take Wegovy and Ozempic and then continue to eat the way we do, we should be eating differently.
1: Or if they take it, it seems like it's interesting reading these articles about how much it could change. They feel like scientists have like, inadvertently invented this thing that that sort of deals with all of your, can I think of the word, it's not just eating, all your, like your bad habits, like people... They stop shopping. They stop gambling. They stop drinking. (laughs) I keep reading these articles on the. I I didn't see the stop gambling part. That's yeah. It really somehow like impulses. That's the word. Like it. It it seems to be an impulse sequestration. And these articles about how people are shorting fast food stock. Like it's just. I agree that everything too good to be true is. But obviously, on the that has a lot
0: to do with meat in your mind in terms of well it's def- it's having plant-based diets is having a lot less processed foods and added fat sugar and salt in our diet it's having enough dietary diversity which isn't isn't like telling people just go do this it's understanding that we've had a policy structure in america since the 1970s that has made large scale grain production incredibly cheap and so today it's cheaper to turn corn into salmon than it is to actually go out and fish and so The reality is it's a policy issue that needs to be transformed through policy, but technology and frankly, new science is transformational. We're supporting these food as medicine programs around the country and we can measure somebody's hemoglobin A1C, give them dietary interventions for 90 days and see those hemoglobin A1Cs go from being pre-diabetic to totally normal and preventing someone from being a diabetic for 20 years. For a couple hundred bucks a month, tops in giving them free, not even for over a three month period. The intervention is we just send to your home free food uh, that is aligned with a diet, whole food, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and some support to know how to consume all that. But it's that doesn't require a ton of support, right? And we target those people who are both pre diabetic and uh, lower income, and they love it. And their connection to the programs are very high. And we've shown such a big decrease in uh, diabetes prevalence in that population that it actually saves insurance companies money to do this in certain populations. So today with the American Heart Association, we're supporting a big bet by supporting a national study to prove that this is an intervention that insurance should pay for because it'll save lives. It'll prevent amputations and all the bad things you have to do when you manage chronic diabetes. And it's a whole lot less expensive and a whole lot more natural than taking those medications. Who, who's funding that? I mean, is it a public-private partnership or how is that? It's public-private. The Rockefeller Foundation is probably the major supporter, but the American Heart Association has raised support from Kroger, a large grocery store in America, the Department of Health and Human Services, the National Institute of Health. And together, we're just trying to change the mindset of what's possible. But that's an example of a big bet. It's it's public-private. It's a new science-based intervention. You can measure the results carefully, know if it's working or not. And frankly, if it works, insurers should reimburse for it. So there's a path to scale. And all of a sudden, you could imagine 30 to 50 million people a year that are teetering on the edge of pre diabetes that qualify having that being covered by their Medicaid, Medicare, or private insurance plan. Yeah, because right now they're paying to fix all the problems, right? Exactly, which is far more expensive over time. And we work with large companies that are self-insured, Walmart, General Motors, a whole bunch of them. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, that are very interested. So to me, big bets are about finding those pathways to scale as opposed to saying, okay, we want to go and do some charitable, kind, good things for people who suffer from, say, diabetes. How big is your staff and budget and
1: is it is it evergreen from that 2% or are you constantly raising
0: new funds? Uh, no, we're constantly raising new funds. And thanks for mentioning that. Anyone who'd like to join can reach out. We're three, four hundred people on a global basis. Uh, we have a seven, six billion dollar current endowment. We're able to commit about three, four hundred million dollars a year out of our endowment to charitable endeavors. And then we raise about that much or a little bit more alongside of that for our projects and programs. I was
1: going to ask you is it project oriented or is it like people partner and fund specific initiatives?
0: Yeah, it's pretty initiative oriented. So the, big energy program I talked about, which is really trying to reach a billion people globally, Uh, we put in $500 million. The IKEA Foundation and the Bezos Earth Fund each put in $500 million. Based on the billion and a half dollars of grant capital that we raised, we went on and raised about $10 billion in commercial and quasi-commercial capital alongside that. And it allows us to do projects like we just announced a $70 million deal in, in Eastern Congo to build three metro grids, to serve a few million customers there with electricity. So we only had to put in about $7 million of our grant money to make that happen. So that kind of leverage is another way to get scale. And it's a big part of getting scale in big bets is finding those opportunities for for leverage.
1: So let me ask you, for individuals who are listening to this kind of aspiring to make big impacts in their community or globally, what are some of the key pieces of advice Kind of from the big bets framework that you would offer to
0: them? Yeah. Well, the first is big bets start with betting on yourself. So, like, be confident. You know, if you care about an issue, whether it's climate change or poverty or racial injustice in your community, like, study the issue, talk to people, learn about it, read about it. I mean, information's never been more at your fingertips. And I find people who become more expert have the ability to be more optimistic because they can understand that solutions exist and people are out there fighting the good fight. I'd say a second insight perhaps they can take with them is really genuinely think about how to sort of solve as opposed to just make incremental improvements. The analytic rigor that we talked about to study different solutions and pick those that you, th- you have the most enthusiasm for because they could scale is particularly important. Another lesson I do talk about in the book around building partnerships, I call it make it personal. But it is this is sort of a special area of of life and work. And and where I've been most successful at, say, building, you know, very surprising partnerships between Democrats and conservative Republicans, for example, we only got there because we, at the end of the day, got to know each other, talked about our values, prayed together, and really connected as people. And so I think if you're going to do this work, It'll be both more rewarding and more impactful if you, if you make it personal. Get to know people you're going to work with, whether they share your background or they don't, uh, so that you can be part of the movement. You know,
1: something you said before, I just want to come back to. It's interesting because we talk about big bets, right? You Think about Google and Amazon and, and Meta have had this 10x, you know, things. And, and most of that stuff has failed or been way too early or, or not worked, And, you know, you said something before that, you know, people in government, the problem is you can't really fail or it ends up in a sort of commission. (laughs) But a venture fund will fail 90%. when It's considered innovative and only, only one will be there. So where does the sort of failure come into these big bets? And as you said, sometimes Amazon had that, remember, they had that Amazon Fire phone that was sort of a miserable failure, but it ended up being the basis of the tablet and TV business and everything that they launched. So it just seems like when you're swinging Big, you're going to strike out a few times.
0: Yeah. And that's why I wrote about a a big strikeout of mine that was personal and painful. Because, you know, what was so interesting is literally weeks after that project fell apart, I opened the Financial Times one day and the front page of the Financial Times had the whole story of that project and how it fell apart and my role. And it wasn't a great morning. But then within a couple of days, we decided that was right when the president started the effort around Ebola. We were tracking that. And, you know, within the next few months, I think we had one of our greatest success stories in making a big bet uh, work and work in a way that protected Americans from a pretty deadly disease And, you know, on behalf of our service members, you know, some folks did some really heroic things in that context. So one of my goals in writing the book is to make it okay to fail as long as you learn and to show folks that, hey, you can fail and you can even fail in the newspaper's pretty high level, spectacular fall on your face failure and roll right into your next big thing that could also be a success.
1: What else from the book have we not covered? What's a question I should have asked you?
0: Well, I, the only thing I would just say for a lot of people, they don't know how to get involved in this work. And and sometimes people will ask well, how and you did effectively ask how do you get involved in it. But I would just say that it's so important that people in my mind both read the book and be optimistic about tackling these things. Like to some extent, you have to shut out social media and some of the- Particularly in the last month. Yes. Yeah. Particularly because otherwise you just walk around thinking everything is falling apart when in fact, we've never had better solutions at our fingertips to address these things. and, And we have a lot of opportunity if we can just stay focused on the upside.
1: So you recommend people take social media off their phones? Is that the first step?
0: So every now and then a social media break to read the book. How about that? <laughs> Perfect.
1: As long as you're not putting key you know, takeaways on social media, then it's all good. So I like to ask this question as a last question. I always say it's, it's multivariant because it could be personal or professional, singular, or repeated. But what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from?
0: Well... You know, I talked already about just in the work, some of the mistakes and how to think about them. But if you really said, what have you learned the most from? You know, I write in the book a number of episodes where I had what one might call imposter syndrome, my first time briefing the president in the Oval Office. and I can see that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm walking in and having Pre- Joe Biden say, are you sure he's he's the right guy. A dozen other examples like that in the book of, of some form. And I would just say a mistake I made, especially earlier in my tenure in government, was sitting at, th- at those tables and questioning whether I should speak, questioning whether I really belonged. And over time, you get over that. But I do wish early on someone had pulled me aside and said, listen, everybody feels this way the first time they're in that setting. And trust your instincts and don't hold back too much. And so that, for me, was a personal evolution I had to get to. Yeah, I have found in my experience that the only people who never have imposter
1: syndromes are the narcissists who, like, drive the car right off the cliff. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they're never worried, always think they belong, don't need to know what's around the next corner. So yeah, it almost seems like most high achievers have some form of imposter syndrome at some. Yeah, I think it's also, right, reaching down and tapping that next person and mentoring them and, and telling them, right, you, you belong in the room. Yeah, exactly. All right, Raj, where can people learn more about you, the book, and the Rockefeller Foundation?
0: Well, on our website, uh, rockfound.org, r-o-c-k-f-o-u-n-d.org. You can follow on all social media as well. Just look up Raj Shah, Rockefeller Foundation. And on our website, we're inviting folks to sign up to be part of something we're calling the Big Bet Community. If you want to be a changemaker in your community and you want to connect to other people who've signed up and learn from the foundation and our partners, and potentially learn about how to access resources to make a difference, please join our Big Bets community. And I I wish you luck on your path to be a change maker. All right, Raj, thank you for joining us today. Your insights and experiences are
1: truly inspiring. And it's been great to have you on the show and hear about all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much, Robert. Great to be with you. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Raj and his book, Big Bets, on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to follow the show to be notified about new episodes and have them downloaded directly to your podcast player to listen to them. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, you just have to hit follow on the show overview page or those three little dots in the upper right if you're on an individual episode in the app and then hit follow. You can also hit follow on Castbox, Spotify, Pandora, or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award winning digital media empire, Yap Media